you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Or rather, I should say, turn back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, those of you who've been with us know that we were, cont- we were traveling through the book of 2 Samuel before the two months apart due to the virus. And the truth is, this morning, it pains me really to have to return to 2 Samuel because I wish the book just ended in chapter 10. David the king is expanding the borders of Israel. Everything's going well. He's finally established his capital city in Jerusalem. The Lord is dwelling there with him. His family is happy. The people are prosperous. His enemies are crushed. His throne is established, and they all live happily ever after. I've mentioned before, and if you were listening as we read, you've noticed this strange thing the narrator of Samuel has been doing, which is that he's been keeping a very accurate tabulation, a record, every time David adds another wife. There's a fatal flaw lurking in the shadows, biding its time. The tempter has been watching David and knows exactly what it is. It's what St. Augustine would call concupiscence, inordinate, unbridled, sensual desire. You see, the enemy has been waiting calculating so that when David falls, he falls from the greatest height. I'd ask that you would pray for me this morning, brothers and sisters, to be gentle. I don't know who has experienced what in this congregation. We also have children present. The truth is we have quite possibly what I believe to be the most totally depraved chapter in the entire Old Testament before us this morning. If you found 2 Samuel chapter 11, let's stand together as we read. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. 
When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Remain here today, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at, at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You may be seated. Verse 1 sets the scene for us and sets the tone for the whole catastrophe that follows. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David went? No, David sent. One little, little letter this whole narrative hangs upon. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. 
The game is over before it begins, and we see that it hinges on the change of one little tiny letter. David went in the past, but this time David sent. When kings were supposed to go out to battle, David the king sent someone else, and he stayed. And of course, David's job is to busy himself with fighting the battles of the Lord. And when he's not busy doing that, he finds himself at home, no one else is there, and he has nothing to do. He's idle. Because at that time of the year, kings were supposed to be out fighting battles. That is his job. Verse 2 literally reads, And it happened at the time of evening when David arose from upon his bed. So the story is beginning in the evening, and he's just now in the evening getting off of his bed. Which implies David has basically just been lounging around, laying in bed, nothing to do all day. While the people and all of Israel and Joab are off fighting the Lord's battles, David is idle, in bed, all day, staying up, all night. A recipe for disaster. And as David is no longer fighting battles against the Lord's enemies, we see while God's people are away, there's an enemy within the gates. No longer fighting in conquest against the true enemies of the Lord, David turns his weapons against his own. It's here, rising late after a day of laying in bed, that he wanders aimlessly onto his porch to survey the vast kingdom that belongs to him and exists to serve him and to fulfill his needs and his pleasures. Verse 2 says, he saw. Satan has been waiting for this day, biding his time. But now the trap is set. And the ironic thing about it is it's this perversion of Genesis chapter 2. David lays eyes on a beautiful woman that he should not behold, and the point is driven home in verse 3 when David inquires about the woman and it is reported back to him he belongs to somebody else, or she belongs to somebody else. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So before he acts, there, there's no question about whether David knows the truth here. Whatever transpires hereafter is the guilt of the king and his guilt alone. He saw, he inquired, he knows she belongs to another. In fact, belongs to one of his devoted young generals. One of his most faithful warriors. A young man who very much ought to remind us of a David from days gone by. He took her. She came to him. He lay with her. And when he got what he wanted from her, he sent her.
just like the garden, Satan separates the king from his bride. It's a divide-and-conquer maneuver. David and his people are apart, but this time, rather than coming and tempting the bride, this Satan comes and tempts the king. While the people are away, their king has turned into a predator within the gates. This is one of the many reasons why sexual abuse within the walls of the church is so destructive to the people of God. The shepherd is supposed to protect the sheep. What happens when the shepherd becomes the wolf? What does that do to the psyche of a people? What does that do to their, the trust that they're supposed to place in this man who's supposed to lead and guide and protect them? What David has done will not only bring destruction into Bathsheba and Uriah's life. We see that here in chapter 11. It will bring destruction to the entire kingdom. This is the beginning of the end of the kingdom of Israel. This chapel. The seed is planted here. All it needs to, is to grow and bear fruit. King David's act here in chapter 11 does damage to his own reputation, but it brings, it brings the reputation of his own throne down and the reputation of every son who will sit upon that throne from hereafter. Can we trust the man who sits on this throne when he does these kind of things? Is this one also a wolf? Will he devour the people like the one before? In David's mind... Chapter 4 is the end of the story. His desire is satisfied. She's ushered out of the castle. Story over. But then verse 5 introduces a complication. The woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. The woman David so easily took and used and discarded now becomes quite the inconvenience. Because... There's evidence of David's sin. She's pregnant. But David has a plan, right? Verse 6. So David sends word to Joab, and he summons this woman's husband back from the battlefield. We can fix this. And Uriah comes back from the battle. You can picture him. He's covered in dirt. He's bloody. He's sweaty. He's been fighting for weeks on end. And David brings him in and tries to shoot the breeze with him. Hey, Uriah! Here's our favorite warrior. How's the battle going? How's Joab? How's everybody doing? How's, what's the food like in the mess hall? Why don't you go home and take a load off? Why don't you head on home and take a bath, if you know what I mean? And here's a goodie basket to uh, sweeten the deal for you. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. David is trying so hard to fix this if Uriah would just cooperate in helping him to cover up what he's done. But he won't do it. Why not? Verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths. My lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house 
to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live, king, as your soul lives. I would never even imagine doing such a thing. Never. So David tries the next thing. He tries to get Uriah drunk. And he's giving him shot after shot. He says, I've had enough. No, you need another drink. Have another drink. He gets him so drunk, hoping he'll stumble home. And at least then he could pretend, well, you don't remember it, but you really did sleep with your wife. Even drunk Uriah's devotion keeps him at the king's gate, and he will not go home. Uriah won't go. But you see, that baby bump continues to grow, and David needs to figure out how to cover up his adultery some way, and if he can't convince people that this is Uriah's baby, then there's only one other solution, and that's to get married and quit. But the thing is, is Bathsheba's already married. He can't marry Bathsheba so long as her husband is alive. And he won't be alive for much longer. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. What utter betrayal. He's stolen this man's wife. He's polluted the marriage. He's gotten drunk. And now he's sending him back to the battlefield with his own death warrant. And you just picture Uriah. He's so faithful, so trusting in David. Carrying in his pocket a letter he'd never open. Delivers it to Joab. What does it say inside? Put Uriah on the front that has the fiercest fighting. And when that when the battle gets hottest, I want you all to abandon Uriah and let him be killed. And Joab himself, he's familiar with these kind of tactics. He has orchestrated assassinations himself. And so he's the man for the job. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. Joab commits, David, carries out David's dirty work. He sends a messenger back. And when the deed is done, David receives the message. And this is what he says to, to Joab. Tell Joab, verse 25. Thus shall you say to Joab, don't let this matter trouble you. It's no big deal. You know, people die in battle every day. No big deal. Another day, you'll live to fight another day. Strengthen your attack. I'm sure that you'll have success. And encourage him. Meanwhile, now, not only has Bathsheba been violated by David, but now she learns that David has gone ahead and murdered her husband. Verse 27 or 26 tells us that she lamented over her husband, and that word lament is so soft in English. It's wailing. It's tears of sorrow and anger of just losing something that's so precious to you, and she's wailing David waits the appropriate period of wailing, but the moment that it's over, he goes, he takes her. The word there in the King James, it says, he fetched her to his house. And in David's mind, end of chapter 11, everything's fixed. Crisis averted, sin covered. Nobody knows. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
So ends what I believe to be the most depraved chapter in the entire Old Testament. Consider, this story we've just read are all of these stories rolled into one. The fall of Adam, the drunkenness of Noah, the rape of Dinah, the deception of Saul, the assassination of Joab, and the murder of Cain all rolled into one. Not only does David break the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, he breaks the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness, and the tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Three brief points this story drives home for us, and I hope we'll leave here with, and we'll leave the first one is obvious. There is no one righteous, no not even one. Perhaps you've heard of the theological concept called total depravity. If you don't know what that means, this is what it means. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is total depravity at its most total. And if you hate this story with everything that is in you, if this story just makes your stomach turn over, if this story makes David repulsive in your eyes at a visceral level, then you are reading this story correctly. This is the Ahmad Arbery case of the Old Testament. A story so repulsive, and as more details continue to come out, it makes you Hate what it stands for and everything that it is. With everything that you are. This week in Georgia, they had the initial hearings for the black jogger. I'm sure you've heard this story already. Who was chased down and murdered in broad daylight by three white men in trucks. In the proceedings this week, a few new things came to light. Not only did they shoot a man in broad day, not only did they chase him through the neighborhood, but fibers were found, cotton fibers, in the fender of the truck, which means they hit the man as he was running away for his life. And then one of the three of them testified against the other that after having murdered this man over his dead body, he said, effing N-word. And then we're not surprised by this, but the photos showed that there was a toolbox in the back that had a Confederate flag on the back as if to remind us that we have a history in this part of the nation of white people chasing down black people for crimes they didn't commit and murdering them in the streets. And we want to look away and we want to hate it so much and we want to shout, this isn't us. This isn't me. I'm not that kind of a person. But the truth of the matter is, if David is capable of this, who of us is more righteous than David? David, the man after God's own heart. If David is capable of this, so are we. The only reason why it says David in this chapter and not Chad or not your name is sheer the mercy of God. If this is David at his core, apart from the mercy of God, then this is us, and that's why it turns our stomachs. That's why it's so repulsive. 
We don't really understand what it means to say we believe in total depravity until we're willing to admit I'm capable of this. Second Samuel chapter 11, that's me but for God. This is total depravity. You know, one of the reasons why this chapter stands out to us is because up to this point, David's record has been spotless. In fact, the narrator has gone out of his way to show us when David's character comes into question that it's not actually him, it's other people acting on his behalf, and he disowns their actions. David's record has been clean up to this point, but rather than outweighing his sin in this chapter, all it does is serve to highlight how terrible his sin is when he commits it. Apart from Jesus Christ, you and I have no hope of our good outweighing our bad. 2 Samuel 11 shows us that good deeds, rather than balancing out the scales, only make your sin all the more obvious like a ketchup stain right in the middle of a white t-shirt. There is no one righteous. Not even one. In some ways, the Old Testament is an exercise of God raising up the best that mankind has to offer and showing us how far short they fall of his righteousness. Noah, Moses, David, Solomon, Adam, a sinless man, fell. How do you and I, born sinners, pretend to be above everything in 2 Samuel chapter 11? Oh, I never. Total depravity. All of humanity has been touched by sin. The same ugly sin lurking below the surface all this time, now bubbling up in David's life. It's there in you as well. Second point of application this morning. Confess the truth. So the question is not if we are totally depraved. The question is, can a man like David, who is totally depraved, be saved? Can God overcome a chapter like this? It begins with confession. Confess the truth. This whole chapter could have been avoided, or at least parts of it could have been avoided at several junctures if David would have just taken the high road and decided to tell the truth rather than trying to cover up his sin. Just confess the truth, because unconfessed sin inevitably leads into deeper and deeper sin. Who would have imagined it reading verse 1? Just reading verse 1, not knowing this story, you read verse 1. Who would have imagined, who would have guessed that verse 1 would have led to rape and assassination? Nobody. Nobody would have guessed that. But isn't that the hidden danger of temptation? Sin always promises to be less than what it really is. David was idle. Idleness led to lust. Lust led to adultery and rape. Rape led to drunkenness. Drunkenness led to betrayal. Betrayal led to murder. Murder led to theft. At any of these junctures, David could have turned back and said, I did it. 
And the story would have been over. Would have prevented everything that followed. But instead, at every point where he hits a roadblock and has an opportunity to confess the truth, instead he chooses another route, a detour. How can I hide? But the truth is, David really couldn't hide it. We'll find that out next chapter, next week. And even the final verse lays it bare for us. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David's selfish sin absolutely ruins this couple. Uriah and his wife asked for none of this. But the narrator writes the story from the perspective of David on purpose. Not so that we can cheer him on and hope that he gets away with it. It's because as his panic begins to rise, we recognize how we ourselves do the very same thing. When we sin, and the chance comes just to tell the truth and suffer the consequences, instead we choose to detour around confession and hide things and cover it up. Not thinking in the least that our sins in our life are having terrible effects on the people around us. Thinking we can hide it from the Lord, and the truth is it only gets worse. It compounds. The flesh says, it's not that big of a deal. You don't need to tell anybody about this. Don't listen. Expect temptation to come this way. You can sin and you don't have to tell anybody about it. You won't have to confess it. It's going to be fine. The good news of the gospel is that we do not have to go down this road. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come for people who have gone down this road and to save them from having to continue down this road any longer. Confess. Tell the truth. Confession puts 2 Samuel 11, stops it dead in its tracks. The story is over the moment David tells James says, confess your sins one to another. There's a gentleness that is bred among the people of God when they become a people who are confessing sinners. When we're not just confessing our sins privately, but out loud to each other, telling the truth about our sin publicly, and then realizing, oh my goodness, these people still love me. God still loves me too. These people forgive me. Wow, the Lord Jesus must forgive me too. And this confession of sin actually helps us no longer to walk down this road. The earlier we confess, the less we walk. Confession, way up here, protects us from sins way down here. Imagine if David had a friend and he's like, man... I should have just gone into the battlefield. I'm idle here. This is wrong. I should go. And his friend's like, yeah, you should go. And David goes. He confesses his sin of idleness. And he returns to the battlefield. And we avoid this whole story. Confess these sins at the top and they'll prevent you from the ones down below. The problem is we don't take these very seriously and we let them lead us down a road. Confess to the stuff up in verses 1 and 2 and you'll never find yourself in verses 26 and 27. 
Oh, how far we've come from the little shepherd boy who inquired of his brothers on the battlefield and slew the enemies of God. Why is it that age so often leads us into a hardness of heart? It shouldn't be so among the saints of God. The young may have the advantage of spry limbs and strong passions, but the mature in Christ should be those known for soft hearts who confess even the smallest sins because they want nothing to do with them. They don't want to walk down that road. They know where it leads. Hearts that grow more and more tender to the Lord as they age. Hearts that secondly confess the truth. Finally, and the most important thing that we can know about this story is that the Lord cares. The Lord cares. This is one of those rare times where the Bible steps aside for a moment and tells us exactly how the Lord feels about what's taking place. That doesn't always happen. Certainly not in narratives. We might be tempted to think that because the Lord in previous chapters has just been blessing everything David's doing, and David is having success everywhere he sets his foot, that somehow God is just giving him a carte blanche to just, God's going to rubber stamp whatever David does, and he's going to approve of it and make sure his kingdom succeeds. Consider the contrast between the way that David responds to what has taken place when the report from the battle comes back. Essentially, David says, no biggie, with the statement we have from the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Understatement of forever. (laughs) So I want to encourage you. If you identify with the victims in this story. If you've been sinned against in these ways. The Lord cares. He does. He is displeased. There will be justice for perpetrators of these crimes. If not in this life, then in the next. The presence of this story in the Bible is not to illustrate that God is unfeeling and harsh and callous. It is here to demonstrate to us with finality that the Lord cares. If you identify with David in this story, as on some level we all should, the Lord cares. He is displeased with your sin. He cares very deeply about the specific sins you think no one else sees in your life. You know, Satan is so crafty in this story. He says to the Lord, oh, okay, So this is David. This is the man after God's own heart. This is the one through whom you're supposed to bring an eternal king and a savior to the world. Okay. And Satan watches him, and he finds that fatal flaw, and he tempts David, and it's over. And now what? What's the Lord going to do? The Lord can't not punish what's in this chapter. Can you imagine? It's all over the news. David's in all of this stuff, and his God didn't do anything about it. 
What's that going to say about the Lord? What kind of God allows his anointed king to get away with all of this before the eyes of the world? David should be immediately executed. This is worse than anything that Saul did in his entire career by leaps and bounds. Think about it. Saul spent 14 chapters trying to kill David, even though David remained loyal to Saul in the end. David turns around and in one chapter accomplishes what Saul never could against Uriah. It's the exact same sin. This is what Saul tried to do to David and couldn't do. David does it in one chapter. David pollutes his marriage, conspires to kill him, murders him, and then steals his wife. David is worse than Saul. And if Saul deserved to be removed, which the Lord did it, how much more, ten times more, does David deserve to be removed for the sin he's now committed? <laughs> but if the Lord puts David to death, if the Lord brings an end to David's dynasty the same way he did to Saul, guess what? The Lord becomes a liar. Because back in chapter 7, the Lord promised an eternal kingdom to David, founded on his eternal steadfast love. So, the, so Satan thinks he's got the Lord in the ultimate catch, 22. Either he's not going to be just and he's going to overlook David's sin, or he's going to be just and become a liar by putting David to death. Will the Lord's justice fail or will the Lord's promise fail? This is the conundrum that is solved at the cross. Because the Lord cares. He cares about upholding his justice. But he also cares about keeping his promises. He cares. Somehow the Lord must punish David's sin, but somehow the Lord must also turn David's kingdom and in, into an eternal kingdom. And he does this in David's son, Jesus Christ, the son of David who never once even had a thought or inclination of setting foot in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Never! And in a world where no one was righteous, not even one, Jesus the righteous one, he steps in and he walks the path of 2 Samuel chapter 11 to its logical conclusion, suffering the death that David deserved for all of these terrible sins. Hanging in the place of the king of the Jews on the cross. And on that cross, God's justice was upheld and his promises were kept. Because for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Uriah made the fatal error of trusting in King David. But you know, the fault wasn't on Uriah's part. It was on David. Friends, trust in Jesus has to be as 100% all in as Uriah's faith was in, Uriah, in David. It's a trust that if King Jesus does not prove to be 100% trustworthy, 100% faithful, 100% good without an ounce of sin, a mite of deceit, a taint of wicked desire, in him we are so bought into him that if he fails at one point... We're all doomed. That's the kind of faith we're called to. The faith of Uriah was 100% undivided. And we would be 
we ought to follow his example. King Jesus will never let us down. He has upheld God's justice and God's promise so that we may no longer walk in these paths, but walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for sustaining us through this chapter, gut-wrenching as it is. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you walked through this valley of the shadow of death, that you suffered and died on a cross for people like David, people like us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you became sin so that we might become righteous. Help us, we pray, to walk in that righteousness today. In Jesus' name, we trust 100%. Now and forever.